An artist once said, The test of a man's sincerity is in his technique, which is probably bad news for this podcast because I'm very conscious of the experimental nature of what I'm trying to do here and the fact that we are far from having a refined product, very dependent on the quality of our content, if this is going to have any success at all. But on the other hand, speaking of content, it's also legitimate to ask if you're a listener, okay, after so many episodes, how do you make this real? And in other words, if you had to jumpstart a weak organizational culture, what would you actually do? And maybe a way of making this real would be to say, Okay, Mr. Podcaster, if you had to come out from behind the microphone and turn around an organization or a part of an organization that's not doing very well and your pay depended on your success, what would you actually do? So that's a very legitimate question to be asking anyone who's organizing a podcast like this. And what follows today is my best answer given my current state of experience. The first thing I would do is I would go to a very great length to confirm that I'm aligned on this mission with whoever's hiring me and anyone else who might have absolute blocking power to the fix that I'm being hired for. Meaning, would my boss and anyone else who's in a position to affect the outcomes agree with the critical principles I'm going to be pushing, even if it meant potential changes to that influencer's own behavior, and even if it meant disagreeing with and overruling some key current employee, or even to the point of accepting that employee's resignation if necessary. In other words, what are the sacred cows here? I was once interviewing for a job, and the interview group kept asking me how I'd handle certain situations with this old-time critical employee. Finally, I looked at them all and I said, listen, I'll do my best, but if making this person happy is a primary for you, then don't hire me. So it's critical in any job to define your space and to smoke out any potential sacred cows and to make very clear with anyone who can impact your success what the real priorities are. That sounds easy to do, but it's hard to do in the interview to find out exactly what's going on behind the scenes that might get in your way. But that is the job in the interview, is to make sure you actually have the mandate that you think you're coming in with. The second thing is, for the group, it's vital to have a compelling and relatively near-term goal that the team is rallying around. It's meaningless to talk about teamwork, except in relationship to an actual team. And one of the defining elements of a team is that it has a clear goal shared by all the team members. It has to be something that a rational person could find important, and it has to be concrete enough that you'll know if your group achieved it. And it has to be short-term enough, because if it's too far out, then it loses some of that concreteness, and it doesn't seem real and doesn't affect behavior. 
But, and here's a trick, I would have an understanding with my boss or the, the group that sponsored me that the actual change we're trying to drive is gonna take a lot longer than what I'm telling the team. The third thing that's really critical is for everyone to know exactly what his or her role will be in achieving the group goal and what good looks like in that person's function. I had a friend some years ago who coached youth soccer. He said his results got a lot better when he made it clear to each player how that player could get a reward. In his case, it was milkshakes after a game. So for the goalie, it might be you get a milkshake if the opponent scores under three goals. Obviously, this has to be very situational, right? For the fullbacks, it might be you get a milkshake if the opponent gets fewer than eight shots on goal. For the midfielder, it might be you get a milkshake if we have possession more than half the game, or you get a milkshake if more than half the game is played on the opponent's side of the field, and so forth. You get the picture. I recently had a milkshake discussion with a department that I'm new to managing. In this case, I actually needed some insight about some of the different functions. So it was a group exercise that I didn't overly control or direct and was really enlightening for all of us. The fourth element is you have to create an environment of win-win, meaning everyone has to be able to see how he or she benefits from the group hitting the goal and from the success of a colleague in contributing to the achievement of the goal. It's the opposite of win-lose, where I mainly see myself as competing with peers and I'm afraid that their success comes at my expense. So what is the compensation system? Or what are the non-monetary rewards that may be explicit or which may not be explicit? This takes a lot of thought and it can be easy to assume you have a win-win environment when you haven't. So what is the local team spirit where the group actually gets excited to see the company beat the competition or hit a target? Or for a department, is there a shared sense of vigor about seeing that department having a much bigger impact? But this is a very big deal and it shows up in very local ways that you have to understand in order to get the group going the direction that I'm about to talk about. Everything I've talked about till now is foundation laying. What I'm about to talk about, the actual recommendations, are impossible without having laid those foundations. It's like a car that's not actually driving yet. The motion and where the healthy culture starts to show up and become real or not is in how do the team members actually interface with each other. A starting point, and I have to emphasize that it's not the end point, when it, which I'll explain more in a minute, is direct communication. You can be sure you've got an iffy environment if people aren't talking to each other, and more to the point, if people aren't disagreeing with each other. You need to know that you can trust the environment so that if anyone is confused, he or she asks for clarification. If someone is feeling overwhelmed, he or she asks for help. 
If someone can see that the plan doesn't make sense, he or she speaks up. And if someone sees a peer not keeping commitments, then that person has to be willing to respectfully hold the peer accountable. There are really strong headwinds to creating this part of a culture. At my company, we call this culture a challenge culture because it's rare in most people's experience to be rewarded for expressing disagreement or admitting a weakness. So instead they go passive or they sabotage each other or they talk about each other instead of talking to each other. So the first thing you have to do is make it clear that it's mandatory for people to speak up and be direct. And you have to make sure you're giving positive reinforcement when you see that. Now, here's where this quickly goes wrong. When people begin to call your bluff and raise their level of directness, at first, if they're inexperienced at it, it's going to be painful. When people first start exercising healthy behaviors that they've repressed a long time, they're likely to do it awkwardly. When people first start being direct, it can be painful for them and for the person they're being direct with. Think of the last time you were outside in the cold too long and maybe your foot or your hand actually went numb. And then later as it began to thaw, it hurt. As it was getting better, at first it hurt. So it's best if you prepare everyone for this, to build the expectation that as we get a lot more direct with each other at first, this is going to create other problems, but we understand that, and let's don't let that keep us from moving forward. We'll react to the problems. If you're new to this podcast series, I would steer you toward two of the earliest episodes, specifically number three and number four, which cover self-management and productive disagreement. There's a lot in those episodes that helps people and their leadership understand how to channel disagreement so that it has a positive impact. You might also look at episode seven on problem solving. And to those lessons, I would add, understand the implications of the milkshake discussion. If I understand how one of my colleagues is defining success in his role, and maybe by implication, what he loses sleep over, I'm likely to be a lot more empathetic when we hit points of disagreement. So start some discussion of getting each team member to see the world through a colleague's eyes. That usually helps. What you want is that people have tools to make direct communication something that they increasingly see more wins from than pain. Otherwise, they're not going to keep doing it. So you've got to be alert to when direct communication comes up, how do you help steer that toward a win? It's also very important that people believe there are consequences to behaviors. If you are turning things around, you are in change management mode, and the best change management coaches are far past me in terms of technique. In fact, I might do another podcast with some of the best advisors on coaching techniques and the GROW model and some of those methods for helping people move forward in a change environment. What generally works best is when change management is done with a ton of empathy, patience, and context building. But people have to know there are boundaries. 
I would even say it's actually slowly moving set of boundaries, meaning you are raising standards. You have to make those clear and you can't bluff. So who gets let go or reassigned? Who gets rewarded or who gets promoted? Those are the clearest forms of communication that you as a leader can ever give. So what I just said probably sounds kind of harsh. What I would also recommend, though, is that within the boundaries of pushing those boundaries, that you go as far as you can to look for the good and to reinforce every positive behavior that you see. This cannot be phony. It can't be fake. It has to be real, but you have to be a noticer. The old Don Shula quote, I never wanted to be accused of not noticing. So you want to be a noticer and point out the positive behaviors and reinforce those as often as you can. And maybe even tell yourself, people at work, almost everyone needs a lot more love than they're getting and a lot more love than they're willing or know how to ask for. So if you have that as a bit of a mantra, you're more likely to be successful. There's one other challenge to the leader of a change, and that is that you yourself have to be highly adaptive. If the culture improves in the direction that you want it to, it almost certainly won't take the original form that you may have imagined. People are going to misunderstand things that you thought were clear. You're likely to have assumptions about people or about someone's mindset that are just wrong. How do you recognize that and adapt? So make sure you bring the same readiness to change that you're asking everyone else to bring and that you're patient with yourself as you're learning how to help this group. A final thought on jump-starting a team culture. It's a lot easier to start small. I'd be very skeptical of changing the culture of a large company. The better approach would be to pick a key division or department that is material to the company outcomes and start there. If you get success, look for what's next and keep building from that original success and original example. So change management in jumpstarting a company culture or the culture of a group is one of the more challenging things that a leader can do. It's also, I would say, one of the most worthwhile things that a leader can do. When you start to see a group feeling like it has winning ways and that it's showing up in outcomes in a sustainable way and you see lights going on in how people see that they can affect outcomes and raise their own contribution, it's profoundly satisfying and it's profoundly useful and profoundly, I would even say, benevolent. <music>